This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So uh, I have always been fascinated with sleep disorders, uh, partially because absolutely no one in my family is a, what you would categorize as a regular sleeper. Like growing up, if... Uh, you woke up at any hour of the day or night, there was already someone awake in my house doing something. Uh, and I grew up with insomnia. I had it for decades and decades, and it sort of suddenly went away in my mid-30s. And I know that sounds crazy when I'm uh, about to say when I say what I'm about to say, but I actually quite miss my insomnia. <laughs> I think when that's your standard operating mode and then you don't have it anymore, it just feels weird. Uh, I miss the quiet time alone in my head. But today we are not going to talk about insomnia, although it is uh, going to be mentioned in relation to narcolepsy, which is the topic we're actually covering. And I kind of feel like narcolepsy suffers from a similar problem in the public consciousness as schizophrenia. Uh, while schizoid behavior is often really incorrectly conflated with other mental disorders, particularly multiple personality disorder uh in film and television and even casual conversation, narcolepsy is often misrepresented in cultural shorthand as being this scenario where someone just can't stay awake or is very sleepy. And while sleepiness is certainly one of the symptoms of narcolepsy, to describe it that way is a pretty serious oversimplification. And additionally, sleep medicine has really only come into its own in the last three decades or so. There was work being done before that, which is what we're primarily going to talk about. But, uh, People were experiencing these sleep disorders long before they were studied to the degree they are now. And so there was this whole history of it. And you may remember that we talked a little bit about sleepwalking during our Albert Terrell episode almost two years ago. And in that one, we mostly discussed Terrell's lawyer using sleepwalking as a murder trial defense. And the science around it was mostly contextual in terms of how it did or did not match up with Terrell's claims. Uh, and in this episode, however, we're going to go much deeper into sleep science and talk about what narcolepsy is, how it was first identified, at least in the records we know, and how research continues to reveal new information about it all the time. So it's a time-traveling science tale that ranges from the 1600s right up to present day. Uh, 
But first, we're going to talk about what the disorder really is. And I will put the caveat out there out of the gate that uh, the sources that we're working from here are pretty much covering narcolepsy as it has been addressed and discussed in uh, Europe and North America. There have certainly been other recognitions of it, but in terms of like clinical papers that I could access and read and uh, study on it, we're pretty much sticking to these. Um, I, I would really love to do a whole other episode or a series at some point on sort of how different cultures view sleep and sleep disorders, because as I said, it's one of those pet areas of mine. But today we're mostly sticking to kind of the Western approach. Uh, and I want to give one really quick note and trigger warning, and it's really probably um, kind of an over, I'm being overcautious with this. Uh, one of the earliest recorded cases that we're going to talk about does involve a patient with a history of sexual violence towards children. Uh, so if that is an issue that you're sensitive to or one that you are not comfortable having a younger history buff hear about uh, today, heads up. It is a really brief mention and it falls pretty late in this uh, first of two episodes. It's not going to be any sort of detailed situation. And we'll give you another quick warning as we come up to that point in the history so you can skip past it if you want to. It, like I said, it's pretty brief. So first up, we're going to talk about what narcolepsy actually is. So if you're not actually familiar with it. It's a brain disorder that's characterized by sort of an out-of-whack sleep-wake cycle. Somebody with narcolepsy might have moments where they do fall asleep in the middle of their normal activities. And cataplexy, which I always want to call catalepsy, but it is cataplexy, is a common symptom of narcolepsy. And this is actually the most specific symptom of the disorder, as it's unusual for cataplexy to exist as a symptom outside the presence of narcolepsy. And this involves an involuntary and sudden loss of muscle control. Uh, although the person is awake, they are unable to move. The, you'll sometimes see it referenced in uh, documents as being a loss of muscle tone as well. Uh, narcoleptics may experience paralysis on either side of the sleep cycle. And sometimes they have really vivid hallucinations, uh, sometimes concurrent with this paralysis. It's not uncommon at all for any person to actually experience some level of sleep paralysis and really vivid imagery in their dreams. It's pretty normal for this to occur during the REM cycle of sleep. But whereas someone with a so-called normal sleep cycle would hit REM at about 90 minutes into sleep, somebody with narcolepsy hits REM almost immediately when they have an episode of sudden sleep. So this rapid transition, both entering and exiting sleep, explains the symptoms of hallucinations and paralysis. And it's also not uncommon for the average person to experience sleep paralysis in some form when they don't transition smoothly from deep sleep to wakefulness or vice versa. I'm sure many of our listeners are like, I've had that happen. Uh, so have I. But for someone with a, a fairly regular sleep cycle, this really only happens occasionally. But for narcoleptics, this is a frequent and persistent state of affairs. I think I remember one time that happening to me in my life, and it was scary. Really? Just the once? Uh, once that I remember. Like I said, I, I've had insomnia and some sleep issues forever. So I have lots of instances of them. And I was actually way into my adult years before I realized, like, that I was not a freak. Like, part of me thought there was something really mentally wrong with me, and I had never really talked to anybody about it until one of my friends was talking about her sleep paralysis. And I was like, wait, other people have this? <laughs> 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 Which is shame on me for not doing the research. So despite sometimes dropping off to sleep during the day, narcoleptics don't usually get any more sleep than the average person does in a 24-hour cycle. 
And this is because even when a person with narcolepsy is in bed and able to frequently do the thing that might appear to some that their body is constantly trying to do, the quality of sleep that they get at that point is extremely poor. It's punctuated by frequent periods of wakefulness, and it's not uncommon for narcolepsy to be diagnosed in tandem with other sleep disorders, like sleep paralysis and insomnia. I think that was the thing that tripped my really trigger the first time I learned about narcolepsy was that you could have narcolepsy and insomnia at the same time. Yeah. Um, It's also sometimes really difficult for narcolepsy to be diagnosed at all because most of the symptoms that are associated with it can also come from other issues. Yeah, I mean, that's part of like sort of the the tricky business of sleep science, right, is that I'm not getting good sleep is a common complaint for people with a lot of different maladies. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, because it can happen concurrently, like we just said, with insomnia. And in this case, it's the type of insomnia where they really don't have difficulty falling asleep, but they often wake up from sleep quite frequently. Um, But narcolepsy is actually pretty common, despite not always being diagnosed. It's estimated that about one in 3000 Americans have narcolepsy with cataplexy. And researchers believe that many more have non-cataplexy narcolepsy. Those two are are. Uh, different. They're categorized differently. And these numbers are only estimates because, as we said, uh, with many sleep disorders, many instances of narcolepsy go undiagnosed. So what we do know is that there's a pretty even split between men and women. It doesn't seem to present in any um, particular racial population or culture any more than another. It's it's pretty fair in how it distributes, uh, and it usually presents sometime in adolescence or early adulthood, although there are certainly cases of it happening in children and in people that are way past their early adulthood. Usually, cataplexy is the first symptom to present in about 10% of cases, and it's sometimes misdiagnosed as a seizure disorder. For a lot more people, excessive daytime sleepiness or EDS is the first symptom. And because many people are leading busy lives and cutting back on sleep to accommodate their to-do lists, it's really easy to chalk up EDS to just getting too little sleep. But it eventually can manifest into micro-sleep. So those are brief periods of very sudden sleep, sometimes only lasting for a few seconds, during which the body just sort of goes into an autopilot mode. During micro-sleep, micro a person might continue to perform the activity that he or she was engaged in when the sleep episode hit, but they're not usually aware of it and then have no recollection of it later. Yeah, and it's, you know, sort of scary to think about because if you're driving a car, you could have micro-sleep and you'll keep driving that car, but you won't be consciously aware of it. Uh, a lot of times people pass through that cataplexy stage where they are still aware before they doze off. But they can't do anything, and then they're just in sleep really quickly. Uh, so there's some t- terrifying stuff to be had around it. Um, you know, for some people, there there are clinicians that will talk about their patients writing notes, and they doze off, and they keep writing their note. But, of course, it becomes scribbly scrawl, and it makes no sense. But their their body is still doing the movements, and it's still doing what it thinks is penmanship of some sort, but it's just nonsense. Uh, Before we get to the first appearance on record that we have, do you want to have a quick word from a sponsor? Let's do that. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These 
interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So while narcolepsy and other sleep disorders undoubtedly existed for some time before any record of them was set down, uh, the first mention of narcolepsy or a narcolepsy-like situation that we know of is attributed to Dr. Thomas Willis. And Willis, who was born in 1621, is often referred to as the father of neuroscience. Uh, he's most famous for his publication of Cerebri Anatomy, a brain anatomy text that described the nervous system in a much more thorough and advanced way than any writing that had preceded it. And he really promoted the idea of taking a very methodical approach to brain analysis. And he actually suggested that some flawed techniques on the part of uh, previous researchers had led to some incorrect conclusions regarding anatomy and specifically that of the brain and nervous system. While Willis didn't call the sleep condition that he witnessed narcolepsy, in his 1672 writing, The Anima Brutorum, he described people who were likely to experience it this way. A sleepy disposition. They eat and drink well, go abroad, take care well enough of their domestic affairs, yet whilst talking or walking or eating, yea, their their mouths being full of meat, they shall nod, and unless roused by others, fall fast asleep. And what's interesting is that Willis suggested in his notes, again, writing in 1672, that caffeine might be a suitable treatment for this. And in fact, caffeine and other stimulants have been used in narcolepsy treatment throughout clinical history. Then we have a gap before we see much more mention of this in the historical record, and it's a pretty large gap. Yeah, there are some mentions of narcoleptic-type cases in the writings of several doctors between the Willis description and the late 1800s when narcolepsy study reemerges with more information, but there aren't a lot. And even so, it's into the 1800s before we really see them again. In 1829, Heinrich Bruno Schindler included a description of what sounds like narcolepsy in his publication, 
Idiopathic Chronic Somnolence. This book contains 20 different sleep disorder cases and begins with one that was observed by Dr. Johann Peter Frank, who was a prominent physician working in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And the case is laid out as follows. Peter Frank mentioned a chief huntsman in the upland who had suffered from somnolence throughout 80 years, his whole life. He could not withstand the irresistible sleepiness and fell asleep even at table with the prince, where he poured too much too much into the wine glass while sleepy and stained the tablecloth. The son of the man was also afflicted with the same somnolence at the age of 40 years. An 1836 account by Dr. Richard Bright, who's known to many as the father of nephrology, also noted a seeming narcoleptic condition in a patient. And then Irish surgeon Robert James Graves mentioned a narcoleptic case in his 1851 writing, Observations on the Nature and Treatment of Various Diseases. Pathologic sleepiness has also been mentioned in the writing of French Dr. Monsieur Caff in 1862, when he detailed a very sleepy patient. But notes made by Dr. Jean-Baptiste Edouard Gillenot, who we'll talk about in just a bit, suggest that Caff's patients may have actually been dealing with an obstructive sleep apnea rather than narcolepsy. Yeah, Caff's case involved a man who was 47 years old, and this man had to resign from his job because his sleep urge was so great that he just could not do his duties effectively. And the patient was described with, quote, attitude detached, stupor, mental sluggishness, persistent stoutness, effect on overall health, as well as being puffy. (laughs) And there's no mention of cataplexy or sleep paralysis in this description. And modern researchers believe that uh, in this case, the patient probably was obese, as indicated by the description of his stoutness. Uh, and as no treatment save a stay at a spa offered the man any relief, there's been some speculation in the sleep research community that he may have lost weight while he was at the spa, uh, which can sometimes help those who have obstructive sleep apnea. So it may or may not qualify as a narcolepsy case. Calf's patient later had a traumatic experience, and the research that Holly found didn't offer a clear indication of exactly what it was. Then he fell into a state of sexual addiction and alcoholism, and he was treated for this by another doctor. Yeah, and then he kind of disappears from the record in terms of what what happened to him. And we're going to kind of jump into another uh, word from a sponsor kind of quickly, but that's because the next chunk is all kind of juicy and it's the research of one man and I want to keep it all together. So we are going to have that word from a sponsor if Tracy's down with that. Let's do it. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, next we get to one of the the gentlemen who's really kind of 
uh, uh, masthead of this whole sleep disorder movement and particularly narcolepsy. And that's Carl Friedrich Otto Westphal. And he was a German physician. He was born in 1833 in Berlin. And he followed his father uh, in terms of uh, his career choice when he went to medicine. His father was also a doctor. And Westphal studied medicine in schools throughout Europe. He eventually joined the Berlin Charité Hospital uh, as a member of the smallpox team there. And a year later, he actually made the switch from the smallpox uh, ward to working with mentally ill patients. And he eventually became a professor of psychiatry in 1874. Westfall is often cited for his work in agoraphobia, which he wrote about just extensively starting in 1871. This was more than a century before agoraphobia would end up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the thing that's often used to sort of categorize different uh, disorders. Yeah, you'll sometimes see those headlines of like, this was added to the DSM or this was taken out of the DSM. And that's that's what we're talking about. Uh, Westfall was also one of the first doctors to study homosexuality, but that term had not even been coined when he was doing his work. And he instead called same-sex attraction, quote, the contrary sexual feeling. And that was indicating his assessment of it as a contradiction between the mind's desire and the body's anatomy. And he felt that as such, it was a condition which should be cared for from a psychiatric standpoint rather than uh, being dealt with through the legal system as a crime. In 1877, Westfall presented two different cases before the attendees of the Berlin Medical and Psychological Society meeting, and the first was about epilepsy. The second focused on a patient with cataplexy. And his patient, who was a bookbinder named Ehlert, had experienced two different phenomena which Westfall discussed at length. First, he did not lose consciousness during these incidents of the loss of muscle control, so that's in line with what we describe as cataplexy today. And second, this patient had persistent insomnia. So these, uh, as you've just listened to our first part where we kind of broke down what insomnia is, these are two very common elements of narcolepsy diagnoses. Ehlert was first admitted to the Berlin Charity Hospital on July 18th, 1871. The bookbinder claimed that several months before he was admitted, he had a fit of anger, which caused him to become ill. He'd lost his job after a fight with a coworker, then gone out for drinks, and then went home where his wife yelled at him. At that point, he had a short episode of 60 to 90 seconds, during which he couldn't speak, trembled, and had to sit down. And though he remained somewhat agitated throughout that evening, Ehlert reported that he slept well that night. But after this incident, even slight stimulation would cause another so-called fit. Uh, the degree of muscle weakness that he would be struck with when these moments t- overtook him grew in severity as the attacks continued. Westfall was the first physician to explore narcolepsy with the common accompanying cataplexy. And he also examined the possibility of some kind of genetic factor in cataplectic patients that it could be inherited. The mother of his patient in this case had a history of it throughout her life, although hers had decreased in its severity as she got older. Her symptoms didn't start to happen until she had an accident in which she was struck by a brick, however. And the patient in Westfall's case, while he primarily talks about cataplexy, also had sleep attacks. And these would happen, Westfall seemed to think, as a result of the cataplexy. So these uh, events would sometimes happen when the patient was, quote, strolling around quietly and aimlessly. Here's how Westfall describes Ehlert's episodes. 
I've had the opportunity to observe the attacks in the patient himself on repeated occasions. He had one of these attacks while I was engaged in conversation with him. While he was still speaking, one could see that a certain change had occurred in his facial coloration. His upper eyelids lowered gradually like those of a person falling asleep, during which the eyes roll upward. Then they opened again once or twice, seemingly with great effort, until they finally shut completely, whereupon the patient stopped speaking after murmuring something incomprehensible. His head sank down to his chest, and his brow seemed forcefully knit. Small, sporadic nostril contractions were observable, and the patient's appearance was that of a seated person asleep. After a short time, several minutes, the eyebrows relaxed, the patient raised his right arm a few times as if stretching upward and rubbed his eyes sleepily, like one awaking from slumber. The scene then repeated itself all over again, during which one could observe that, though apparently asleep, the patient hears as well if one addresses him, since he nods in response to questions directed to him. Afterwards, he also knows everything that was said during the time. Yeah, and that's a little bit different in that uh, our modern research suggests that like people right up to the point where they hit microsleep, they may have consciousness, but there is this gap in their recollection of what happens during these microsleeps. So that's just a little uh, different thing that I wanted to point out. Uh, Ehlers' condition also caused him a little bit of trouble on occasion. There was one point where he was mistaken for being drunk while he was working as a porter and a policeman was called. And when he recovered from his attack, he, of course, became his normal self. He was completely uh, cogent and aware, and he was able to explain that, no, no, in fact, he had a medical condition. When Ehlert had an attack, his eyes closed involuntarily. They could only be opened with great effort. If he was able to do so, he only saw bright light. He also reported not feeling tired before these attacks and described the pre-event mental state as his mind being empty or wandering completely. No dizziness accompanied them. So remember, Westfall is describing cataplexy at this point, and then he goes on to say that Ehlert's instances of sleep are an extension of the muscular condition. And while Westfall did not use the terms cataplexy or narcolepsy in his presentation or in the related writings that he worked on afterwards, he was clearly describing the same symptoms. And as we said, his work also focused so much more on the cataplexy than the narcoleptic sleep attacks. So while he was clearly onto the disorder, he didn't identify it as one unique condition unto itself quite yet. As for the lack of a name for what he had witnessed in his patient alert, Westfall wrote, one is faced with a predicament in attempting to attribute a name to the illness described above. It would be a simple matter to call these episodes epileptoid attacks as well, and I cannot object to the term if one wishes to lengthen the list of very varied conditions commonly called by that name. This does not advance our understanding at all, however, and the peculiarity of the attacks, to which I need not add any further detail given the exhaustive description above, persists nonetheless. And then almost as a footnote, Westfall mentions another case he consulted on several years earlier. And it really is like a footnote. He goes on and on and on about Ehler, and then it's like two paragraphs on this one. And this is our trigger warning section. Uh, this is the case that we mentioned at the top of the episode that involves some unsettling content. We're not going into any details, and it will take us less than a minute to talk about it. So if you want to hop ahead, now is the time. So several years prior to his work with Ehler, Westfall had been asked to collaborate in determining the mental state of a recently arrested criminal. The man, who was named Von Zastrow, had raped and attempted to murder a young boy. Westfall had expected, based on the information that he had been given, to find that Von Zastrow had epilepsy. 
None was indicated, but the prisoner did relay that he would often fall asleep in social situations and that he had been mocked for doing so. Von Zastrow suspected that this constant drowsiness might be the result of his addiction to masturbation. Yeah, this caused some confusion, uh, you know, about sort of it being associated with uh, sexual deviance or something like that. But Westfall concludes his paper by talking about this tale. And he says that he was reminded of this case while working on the instance of, uh, you know, uh, putting together his notes to relay Ehlert's condition. And he writes, quote, one cannot deny that if additional observation should uncover a fairly common occurrence of such sleep attacks, then we are in the presence of a pathological manifestation of the nervous system, which, in the exploration of the mental condition of certain categories of criminals, deserves no less consideration than epileptic or epileptoid attacks. It is evident that for the time being, nothing less than a disease of the central nervous system can be concluded, and that the question of responsibility in and of itself is not involved. So at this point, the medical community is really on the cusp of recognizing narcolepsy as an actual medical condition. And that is where we're going to stop. Yeah. So we can get to part two, which is where the next big, uh, huge part of uh, identification and research comes in. Uh, so hopefully you will not. I, I had to chuckle to myself as I was doing some of this research because I was thinking, I hope none of our listeners start hearing these symptoms and go, maybe I have narcolepsy. <laughs> the way that first year med students always do. I'm more when uh, at the start when we were talking about the symptoms, I was like, this sounds a lot like sleep, sleep apnea. And then we got to the part where we talk about sleep apnea and I was like, yep. Yeah, that's uh, like we said, there are so many commonalities amongst different sleep disorders that it really does cause some trickiness in terms of identifying some of them, uh, particularly at this point in time. And even up until like the mid 20th century, when they were really developing, identifying test uh, procedures, it was easy for people to kind of get written off or misdiagnosed. And, and we'll talk about that some more in episode two. And now I have listener mail. Uh <laughs> This is a, a correction on our Gaudi episode. We got a couple of these, and I will talk about it a little bit, uh, and I will laugh at myself. So uh, this is from our listener, Kevin. He says, I wanted to provide you with a small but important to me correction regarding your comment comments on Gaudi's beatification. One of you mentioned that members of the society promoting Gaudi's beatification, quote, already believed in Gaudi's divinity. That was mine. Uh, it was a misspeak on my part. I made a quick search for this group and found what I believed is their website, but it was in Spanish, which I cannot read. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, so he says, furthermore, if they are Catholics familiar with their faith, which I presume to be true, they would not believe that Gaudi was divine. Individuals named a saint by the Catholic Church are considered to have had lives of heroic virtue and are to be considered examples of how to live a good life in accordance with God's will. The Holy Spirit of God is considered to have acted within these individuals. However, these individuals are not considered to be divine in the sense that they themselves are a God or directly part of God, rather that the Holy Spirit inspired these individuals. We got a couple of these, one of which kind of accused me of having been raised with some sort of anti-Catholic sentiment. And I had to chuckle a little bit. Not that it's not a valid comment and a valid correction to make, but because uh, I have a lot of relatives who I would have to apologize to if that were the case, because my mother's side of the family is very devout Roman Catholic and I was raised Catholic. This is just a case where I misspoke. You know, sometimes notes are getting written in the middle of the night. I certainly would not mean to... um uh, in any way, mock or misrepresent anybody's religion. But it did strike me as funny that people thought I might be anti-Catholic because I grew up very, very Catholic. 
Well, and I'm just, I'm just forgetful, and sometimes I just speak extemporaneously, and it's not always correct. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I would seem to, uh, they were worded in such a way that they sort of sounded like maybe you had never heard of Catholicism. <laughs> Which really did make me laugh, because, I mean, I have, like, clergy in my family. Like, there's, so it was a chuckle. And again, I don't mean to in any way downplay the import of their, their feelings on the matter, but it, it just, the um the juxtaposition between what they thought might be going on and what my actual upbringing was was so completely at odds that it was a little bit comedic to me. That's all. So apologies if anybody was confused or dismayed by those comments. I'm telling you, you can be raised Catholic and still say the wrong thing. If you would like to write to us about uh, today's episode or anything else that pops to your mind, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at Missed in History on Twitter, facebook.com slash Missed in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com is where you go if you want to get some cool Missed in History goodies like shirts and bags and phone cases. You can also find us on pinterest.com slash Missed in History. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, howstuffworks.com. Type in the word sleep in the search bar and you will get an article called How Sleep Works. And you will learn a lot about how various things can happen to you when you do and do not get enough sleep. Uh, if you would like to visit us at our home webpage, that's mistinhistory.com, and you'll find all of our episodes, show notes, the occasional blog posts, some cool art associated with all the episodes. Uh, and we encourage you to do that and also visit our parent site, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.